you have to be okay with mistakes. You have to be okay with shame if you're going to grow and if you're going to live on your edge. And if you're not willing to risk yourself, then you're just not going to get anywhere because that's the ante. Hi, I'm Derek Mills. Welcome to the Globe Podcast. You may have attended some of Elena Brower's inspiring classes on GLOW and possibly also discovered her that way. Well, Elena's guest, Jeff Rosenthal, did as well. He first took her class on GLOW back in 2011. Jeff is a co-author of Make No Small Plans, Lessons on Thinking Big, Chasing Dreams, and Building Community. The book was published this April. Along with his co-founders in the Summit event series and community, Jeff has written the story of how community becomes a powerful human technology to help solve our urgent global challenges. Their book is so inspiring. They share their point of view on concepts such as trust, authenticity, reaching beyond your grasp, the importance of passion and purpose and focusing on team culture, the value of hard work and intentional execution, that leaders don't have followers, rather they create other leaders, honestly addressing your weaknesses, learning from mistakes, the art of trusting yourself to take a risk, especially when people think you're crazy, and navigating the inevitable, never-ending challenges that await you as an entrepreneur, and so much more. Uh, lots of concepts and advice which certainly mirror many of my own experiences of what it has taken to help build GLOW. Community has allowed him and their talented team to help build Summit into a recognized event brand all over the world and develop what he calls the favor economy, an economy of sharing and connection. I've been very fortunate to attend Summit Series a few times and in my experience, the act of giving of yourself with no expectation of a return certainly suffuses their ethos and is built into the attendee experience. Well, I guess attendee maybe isn't even the right word since ultimately you end up feeling more like a participant of the event than a guest as you're interacting and making meaningful connections with incredibly inspiring people. Their learnings shared in their book will make you think differently about how you might start and manage your business, help you be a better leader, a better colleague, in short, a better human. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Elena Brower and Jeff Rosenthal. Jeff, my brother, my old friend, I am so happy to be here with you. Thank you so much for doing this with me. Of course. It's such a pleasure. It's been way too long. Yes, it has. I was thinking uh, this morning during my sit about how long it's been. And I think I came to you for the first time when Jonah was like three. Okay. And he's almost 16. Unbelievable. I know. He's six foot one, by the way. Well, you um, came to one of our early flagship events in Thai yes. yoga uh, yes. at Summit Base Camp. Yes. And I think that was 2011. Um, but we, of course, got introduced to you via Yoga Glow, you know, um, long before that, years before that. And uh, it was a huge foundation for our not just, you know, yoga practice, but spiritual practice and self-care and 
you know, so I, I, I stand on your shoulders, Elena. Wow, dude. I don't even know what to say to that, but I do remember the first time I came to see you guys, I believe it was in, was it in New York city or Malibu? Mm, both are possible. Yes. In any case, in New York city, it was this cute little apartment on Broadway where I was teaching you and Brett and Malibu was sort of the first time I started to get a vision for what you guys were creating. And now I get to hold in my hands your book entitled Make No Small Plans, which is so ridiculously exciting. I feel like the, uh, at, at all at once, I feel like the auntie, the cousin, the sister, the big sister, and the grandma of Come all on. of this. I swear, this is how I feel. And I, and I sort of waver between all of these different um, sensations. But this book is kind of where I want to focus our conversation today, because I think our listener uh, through GLOW will really appreciate the, first of all, the fact that our connection was first through GLOW those uh -huh. many years ago, but will appreciate the audacity and the tenacity and the, um, the commitment that you four have made uh, to creating this experience for so many thousands of us. So let's, let's walk into the very, very beginning. We are looking at this book, Make No Small Plans, by four co-founders of Summit. And the first, obviously, is your man, Jeff Rosenthal, who's with me right now, um, Jeremy Schwartz, Brett Levy, and Elliot Bisnow. Um, I would love to know how all of this started and when. Well, it all started in 2008. Uh, Elliot was at the University of Wisconsin and he had dropped out and then joined his dad to, to run their family business called BizNow, which was a, and still is, a, a very large commercial e-newsletter and event series. Hmm. Um, and I think he was like 20 years old and was, you know, uh, I think he would say himself a pretty, uh, had a small world, bit of a nerd, a little socially awkward. And, you know, their business started to scale. Um, and so he was very desperate in a sense for peers. And, mm. you know, he cold called um, the first like 19 people um, and got them to go on a ski trip with him in Park City, Utah. Um, and, you know, it was it was no production, you know, no skill whatsoever in gathering people. But the simple act alone of gathering these 19 people turned out to be really exponential for everyone involved. People made amazing friendships. They all supported each other's businesses and the learning that came from just that, you know, 72 hours of exposure to one another was like a breath of fresh air. Um, mm. When you're a young founder, you're typically learning by screwing stuff up and then hopefully not repeating those mistakes. Um, and it's a very lonely place. You know, most of your peers um, are doing something that's a little bit more, you know, uh, down the beaten path. And by definition, when you're an entrepreneur, or you're a founder of a startup, you're, you're kind of, you know, forging your own trail in a sense. And so it's, it's invaluable to have peers and then even more valuable, frankly, to have mentors that have already walked those roads. Um, and for the second event, our co-founder, Brett Levy, got involved and they had met at like a, you know, really sad real estate, you know, uh, drinks and gathering in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. And they were the only two young guys there. And uh, Brett was helping him produce the Mexico event, which was 60 people, also in 2008. 
And on that event, it was the founders of Facebook and YouTube and Zappos and Uber before Uber, alongside the founders of Charity Water and Donors Choose and Change.org and Feed Projects. And so there was this incredible connection of, you know, these generational luminary entrepreneurs and social entrepreneurs that really occurred at Summit. And I, I helped out on that event a little bit. I still was running my own startups. I still had a day job in New York City. Right. Um, but myself, and I, I went to college with Brett. He and I threw parties together in college ah. um, and, and had stayed best friends. And Jeremy was his high school best friend. And um, oh, was on, he was on the Warp Tour with his rock band. Um, and so cute, Jeremy yeah, rock band. It's true. It's best. true. And, um, you know, we all, Jeremy and I around the same time, we like quit our jobs. We, we set aside our projects and we, uh, moved onto Brett's couch in Washington, DC to work on summit full time with him and Elliot. And, um, while we were planning our Aspen event in 2009, this is like 270 days after we started summit after the very first event, we got Ooh. the opportunity to host a gathering for the Obama white house a month after they took office, which wow. is its own crazy, incredible story. But, you know, this is just to illustrate, it was like so exponential, the first phase of building summit. It was like, this is this germination of this little idea you know, we did it a couple of times. And then the next thing we knew, you know, we had an audience with the White House. It's ridiculous. It, um, it reminds me, I've read your book, and it reminds me of one of the final chapters, I think it's chapter 33. Um, I'm flattered, first of all, thank you for reading it. Of course, you guys are my people, of course. But, but you, it was about uniting the core. Let me just find it one second. Unite the core to move the mass. Yes. Okay. And this actually, uh, or this chapter starts in Basecamp, but I think there's a really salient bit here for our listener uh, around the fact that you don't need a million people or a thousand people. You just need a handful of people who are deeply committed to what is happening to connect. And as evidenced by what you just shared, that very first uh, first couple of events were all these different people who are now literally leading the way in the world, not just in our country. Um, we're all together. And I'm sure that that continues to this day where they support each other and they are sort of lifting each other up quietly or or overtly. Yeah. Nobody says they want electricity. They want all the things that electricity brings them. Washing machine, refrigerator, air conditioning. Mm -hmm. uh, community is an enabling technology and it can just be invaluable. And it's not a one-time transaction. It's a lifetime of pleasure and friendships and value and professional relationships. Um, and, you know, the foundation of community is culture. And at that, you know, first White House event, um, Tony Shea, um, who's since passed away, pulled oh, us aside. Rest in peace, Tony. Yeah. Gosh. He pulled us aside that day. He was one of our biggest patrons, biggest supporters. And uh, he said, guys, are there people here who you wouldn't have to your parents' house for dinner and be their friend if they didn't have their personal or professional success? And we were like, yeah, of course, Tony. You know, there's some people here that we are trying to hang out with. Um, but, you know, the, the, the ask from the White House was to get like, you know, the generational leaders of our time who are driving innovation. It wasn't like, who are the nice guys and girls that we want to hang out with? And he said, well, they can't come anymore because if you're building a community, the most important thing is your culture. Wow. And here we are in 2022 and we've heard so much about community and culture, but this was like unheard of to us. We were 23, 24 years old. 
we stayed up all night until sunrise and in, in, in thinking about this and talking about this. And this is where we came up with the criteria for who we include in Summit. It's one, are these people innovators in their field, regardless of discipline or level? Mm. And two, are they kind, open-minded, nice people that we'd want to be around regardless of personal professional success? That you'd want to introduce to your folks. Yeah. And when you talk about that later chapter, that yes. unite the core to move the mass, I think that you know, when you're young and you're on the way up and you're a hustler, ready, fire, aim is another chapter title. And that was how we operated. It was like, you know, just spray and pray. And I think that once you're a little bit older and you have some more wisdom, you realize that being cited and scoped and strategic and specific um, really helps you unlock the things that you want with a much greater rate of success. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think what you're referring to is, you know, when we decided we were going to buy Powder Mountain, we were hosting the base camp event that you were at yes. and uh, we told like 40 or 50 people to meet us after the event was over the next morning behind the hotel yes. and we put them all on a bus and they didn't know where they were going and we took them to the airport and there was an unmarked gate at the airport um, and you know, it was Genius. very like Harry Potter style um, and they all got on the plane and then of course it was us on the microphone saying we're flying to Ogden, Utah land in Ogden, 20 minute drive to the mountain. They go all the way up to the top of the mountain as the sun is setting. And we had built this uh, tiny little nothing cabin with a tiny little furnace on skis. I think it cost us like $7,000 to construct this thing. Right. Um, and the rock stars at Powder Mountain, like the teams there who are just incredibly, they built it themselves and, you know, towed it over on some uh, snowmobiles. And mm -hmm. we had drinks and watched the sunset and roasted marshmallows and told this group about our vision. Um, wow. And so... It wasn't like transactionally successful that singular weekend. It's not like everybody was like, we're in for a million dollars. It was more like this was the beginning of the next two years of hosting people out there. And that initial group of 40, they told their friends who told their friends who told their friends. And that became the spiral dynamic for us getting the body heat and the vibe and, of course, the capital to complete the transaction. Right. It reminds me, first of all, the energy I remember that weekend was palpable, uh, contagious, just so nourishing. Um, I'll never forget it. And the kid never forgot it. The kid remembers he was tiny then. But more importantly, I think the the way that you collect people, the way that you reference community as a technology and enabling technology is really important. And it reminds me of... I also made a note about chapter 13, when you know how to listen, everybody is a guru. It's a little nod to Ram Dass. Um, you can do well, we're on page 93. You can do well by doing good, he said. This is humanitarian entrepreneurship. I want to talk a little bit about that because I think at least uh, for right now, our listener might be completely enthralled by this concept and inspired to do something about it. Sure. We, the, the person who is the first humanitarian entrepreneur we had ever met was a guy it, it, with, with that moniker and really like a pure humanitarian entrepreneur was a guy named Mikkel Vestergaard Franson. Yep. Um, and we wrote about him in the book and he invented the life straw which is a handheld water purification device and the permanent, which is a mosquito net with an injected insecticide that is used globally to battle malaria. And it's actually the same technology as wrinkle-free shirts, which he figured out through his own sort of like research and R and D process. Get out. Yes. 
Um, incredible entrepreneur, incredible guy. And it's a really big business. Um, and it's very expensive to get a product to the scale and to go through the tests and to, you know, get it approved for purchase from the World Health Organization or, you know, the UN Foundation or whatever for fighting malaria. You have to do your own self-funded um, regional, state, and national tests. You're, you're spending tens of millions of dollars to prep the marketplace for something like this. So we just never heard of the concept of like humanitarian entrepreneurship. And then if you extrapolate that to like things like Glow, things like Calm, um, you know, any healthy food product that's taking mm. market share from an unhealthy food product. Yeah. I think that there is, you know, infinite space in this throughout our economy and the decarbonization of our homes and our businesses. That's mm. going to be one of the biggest economic transitions of our lifetime. So you can, you know, protect the planet and make money. I mean, it's it, the, the thing that is the great differentiator, though, is it has to be important. Like that's the make no small plans at its core is like, you need to do something that's inspiring enough to have people gather around this idea and make it realize. If it's also ran, if it's small, if it's mom and pop, sure, you can have a little project here and there, but you can't affect the outcomes um, of the world around you because the, the, the things at play are large, they're huge. Um, and I would argue that market-based solutions are the things that are gonna have the most resource behind them to really affect change at the greatest scale. Yeah. And if you're listening to us right now and you're thinking, well, you know, it's too late. I can't do anything about this X problem, Y problem. In chapter 18, we talk in this book about uh, how the ancient Chinese proverb says the, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago and the second best time is now. <laughs> and I feel like you guys are the embodiment of this. I, I've watched you grow up. I've watched you create. I've watched you give. I've watched you receive. Um, what would you say to somebody who's listening to us, let's say somebody in their 20s or 30s who is deeply inspired by what you've done and is completely daunted by the prospect of what they need to do in order to create what they want to create? Uh, thank you for the question. Yes. First, first of all, less than 1% of people who are entrepreneurs or creatives can do it themselves. And there are those geniuses out there who can paint every brushstroke, sign every check, manage everything. Uh, that's not me. That's not my partners. That's not the majority of people that you see building things that you uh, admire. And the narrative arc of a lot of the like business stories or creative stories, it's like this one person did this. Thing. It's never like that. Um, so, you know, once the search is in process, something will be found and it's all bricklaying. It's just step by step. And after, you know, three years in the game, you start building pattern recognition. By 20 years in the game, you're a real player. I mean, we're talking about an infinite game here. This yes. is not like a sport that you play for three seasons. This is like a, a, a body of work. So I would say, you know, you have to be passionate and you have to be inspired because otherwise someone who is is just going to smoke you. It's work for you. It's fun for them. Um, and, you know, I would say that 90% of people don't like the work that they do. Like it's a really hard world out there, like with student debt and just the unfairness of, you know, where you can be born in a society and how that affects the outcomes. Yeah. Um, just the time period that we're in, um, you know, it is extremely difficult to start anything. So I don't want to be like, yeah, you focus and you, you know, have inspiration and you follow your heart. It's not like that. It is really hard. But if you love it, 
anybody who's in the space is going to deeply enjoy a conversation with you. Yeah. It doesn't matter what your level is, but if you're really about it, if you're a real student, you know, Elena, I don't know anybody who's as wonderful of a yoga teacher and, and mindfulness practitioner as you are. And I imagine that, you know, there's plenty of fans where you're like, okay, this is a bit of a, you know, chore as well. I'm in service of you so you can have this conversation. But when somebody comes to you and asks you a question that you enjoy thinking about mm. or shares some insight about the space that you love and care about that you didn't know, you don't care what their level is or where they're coming from. And you're likely to be a part of their life, you know? So yeah, um, that is absolutely true. Absolutely true. I think, um, I think there's something of value in what you just said, and it links also to a slightly later chapter about making mistakes. <laughs> Don't worry about making mistakes when you're making history. Uh, to our listener who, who really might be considering starting something and is daunted by it or intimidated by the prospect of it. You know, every single one of us who has ever created a business uh, a, uh, a body of work, a book, anything like this, we have to make mistakes. If you don't make mistakes, you will not actually create the fullness, the richness of the work that you're meant to create. And I think you guys really put it well here um, in this chapter. You had just landed back in Washington. Um, you had come from Montana you were working on DC 10. I would love to just hear a little bit about this time because it feels like a pivot point. For sure. Uh, that there's a great book called the Hagakure, which is like one of the philosophy books of the samurai. And, and the way they put it is uh, only death is the end of shame. So, you know, you, you have to be okay with mistakes. You have to be okay with shame if you're going to grow yes. and if you're going to live on your edge. Yes. Um, and if you're not willing to risk yourself, then you're just not going to get anywhere because that, that's, that's the ante. Um, mm. You know, mm. in, in 2010, um, that was really like our breakout moment as a global conference in Ideas Festival. Um, we had hosted some great events, um, but this was, you know, three times bigger than our previous event. It was in the nation's capital. Um, and while we had had some speakers and some talks at previous events, this was the first time that we were just like, you know, above and beyond. It was John Legend and Michelle Ree talking about students' rights. And it was, right. you know, Bill Clinton. It was Ted Turner. Um, <laughs> it was Steve D'Angelo, who's like the godfather of marijuana reform in the United States before California or any other state legalized. Right. Um, and another like hundred unbelievable um, maybe not 100, say 75, 60 incredible speakers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the attendee base was so interesting because like at this point, a lot of these, you know, founders and entrepreneurs in our generation were on their like, say, Series A. So if you think about like the generations of a business, it's the seed or pre-seed, the germination of the idea, the seed, whether or not you raise capital is when you start building the team and start really formulating your go-to-market. By the time you're raising Series A, you have a product and then B is post product market fit. And then if you are raising later rounds, that means that you're crushing it and your business really works and it's scaling and you're going to sell this thing for a boatload of cash one day, or you're just going to have a ton of impact and have a great business. Mm -hmm. um, and so this was really like that moment where the establishment was starting to see a lot of our friends, you know, like the sweet green founders, they did a, they did a, a catered lunch on the mall underneath um, the Washington Monument. I think it's their only catered meal they ever did. <laughs> and they had like three restaurants in DC at this point in time. And now, you know, like we got to ride that whole ride with them. 
Um, And there's all these examples where, you know, like we just were, it felt like you were early to the party. It felt like you were really lucky to be around one another. Um, And then that sort of establishing factor, again, it seems like almost semantic, but being in the nation's capital and having those huge names speaking, it really created an opportunity for us to brand co-opt, right? So if you think about how Nike did it, Nike became Michael Jordan, Nike became, you know, all of these great athletes. And when you Mm. see the Nike check mark, you think about that athletic greatness. Yeah. With with Summit, because we were able to get sports teams owners and incredible founders and amazing impact leaders and, you know, the most influential politicians of the day, it really painted us with that same paintbrush. So it, it, it actually gave us more uh, leeway to be more experimental and weird and out there and non-established, which led to our next big event, Summit at Sea, where we really broke the model of, you know, <laughs> on land conferences. Hmm. You know, what's funny. I, when you said it was nice to feel like you were there at the very beginning of something um, in reading this chapter, I hadn't, I didn't attend this event, but reading this chapter about the tea with the grandmas mm-hmm. and Yossi's bake sale, mm-hmm. like, holy shit, the wrinkled flags, mm-hmm. you know, our listener, if you, you need to get this book, if you have even the remotest interest in creating your own business and world, it's chapter 21. Honestly, you have to read this. The um, the wrinkled flags with Bill Clinton on stage and 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 the tea with the grandmas, your grandma and Elliot's grandma. Yeah. You- well, and that's and that that really showed you what we were about, and like it it kind of speaks to our realization of this idea of social sculpture at an event. So, like incorporating all these different experiences that change the texture in your memory of that moment in time. Uh, you know, the, I'll start with Yossi. Uh, you know, Yossi Sergat was the head of the OPL, uh, Office of Public Liaison for Obama for a while. He was a meaningful part of the Obama Hope campaign with Shepard Ferry. And he's the guy that got us that first White House meeting. And when we got to D.C., you know, I'm sure he conveniently forgot to sign up for the event, but he's like, I'm coming to the event and I'm bringing a troop of Girl Scouts and we're selling, you know, we're selling cookies or it wasn't, I don't think it was Girl Scouts, but the equivalent. No, it, was, it was like a proper bake sale. It was a proper bake sale. And we were like, totally. dude, there's no way we're doing a bake sale, you know, after <laughs> like these people come on off stage, just, just forget about it. And when we opened the doors from our opening plenary, our first big talk and 800 people pour out into the rotunda of course, Yossi's there with like a troop of little girls selling baked goods. And it was amazing because yeah, everybody's like, this is the coolest thing ever. You guys are so thoughtful. I'm buying 20. And, uh, you know, of course, it not only worked, but it made us look fantastic. Um, of it's like down home real time. And then, the you know, the tea with the grandmas, Elliot's <sighs> grandma and my grandma. Florence and Joy. That's right. Um, who were both wonderful and both since passed. Uh, yeah. They they literally like I think Elliot's grandma stayed up all night like baking literally baking like nine hundred cookies. I yeah. don't I don't know that my grandmother got involved in the manual labor, but they both hung <laughs> the whole time, and it was one of the most like popular <laughs> events. And actually, funny enough, it really showed us who we were going to end up spending the most time with and becoming the closest friends with out of the people that were there because it's very self-selecting. Like if you have interest in tea with our grandmas, sounds like we're probably going to be long-term friends. Like do you also are in on the joke? And and if- uh, The joke that isn't even a joke. Exactly. That's the beautiful part about that. I couldn't even, I was so bummed that I hadn't attended when I read about this because the beautiful part is, guess what? That's actually the whole story right there. Mm -hmm. 
as cool, as connected, as accomplished as you are, you're putting tea with the grandmas on one of your first events where Bill Clinton is speaking, Mark Cuban is speaking, like, who does that? You. Yeah. It's insane. It's our show. We can do it's what exact- we want. Yes. <laughs> and the last thing I want to point out for our listener to page 150, um, I made myself a note and folded this page because Mark Cuban said way before he was super successful as he is, he said, when I die, I want to come back as me. Good. Yeah. Before he was successful, you guys got on a plane the next morning after that gigantic, ridiculously successful event, got to Nicaragua, I think it was, right? Yeah, that's right. And, and literally we're just ruminating on that statement. Like, Oh, Okay, so maybe the ultimate accomplishment, if you were to use that word in this life, is to want to come back to this life as it is right now, super zen, actually, as it is right now, come back as you are before you're successful, just with your own integrity and grace. And and to be fair, he already owned the Mavericks and he had sold broadcast.com to Yahoo. So I think he was already a billionaire. So he was successful. Okay, he fine. Wasn't, he wasn't, you know, globally fine. celebrated. There wasn't a shark tank yet. And I don't know right. that he had his family yet or, you know, right. sure. So but but just to feel that way at any level, like all of us, doesn't matter where your stature of standing is in society. It's a sociological uh, phenomenon. Everybody feels like it's not enough. Right. Everybody feels like they don't have enough or that their, you know, relevance is being threatened daily and that they're trapped in the, you know, in the, in the body and in the situation that they're in. And, mm. you know, um, so it's still an incredibly Zen place to be because most billionaires are chasing the next billion or chasing the next, you know, rung right. on the ladder of, you know, uh, standing and power. Um, there's always another higher level room to get into. And then what's your standing in that room? Right. Right. And I think what we realized even at that moment, like, okay, we threw our event, we made enough money to sustain ourselves and our business for that year and enough money to put, you know, a down payment on uh, the ocean liner that we chartered the next year for an event. We could choose to work. Uh, Mm -hmm. We were young and we went to Nicaragua and we surfed and we worked from Nicaragua for a while. And that Mm -hmm. was when we were like, wow, this is the lifestyle. This is what you buy. You know, there's a great, uh, and I hate if, you know, you've heard this a thousand times before, but there's a man fishing in a village and he's great at it. And another guy sees him and is like, hey man, you should really like, you know, buy a boat. That way you could have other fishermen and then you buy more boats. And then, you know, eventually you have an armada and then we'll, you know, build an international organization that will sell so you can come back here and fish by yourself underneath mm. this tree. Mm. And I think that a lot of people get stuck in that cycle. So for us, You know, we love time with our families and with our friends. We like working Mm -hmm. with our friends. Um, And frankly, we get more pleasure out of seeing our friends win than adding zeros to our own bank account. Um, So it made us very aware of the trade-offs for, you know, the kind of business that we would build. Um, And I think it's the most valuable thing that we got out of this whole experience. To kind of put the highlighter pen on that for our listener, I think the most... um, I think the most important thing that you've come to understand is how to value your own time uh, to organize it so that you can both play and work to prioritize the closeness and the connectivity over the dollars. 
but to keep the dollars in view, obviously, it's like you're raising a family. You got to put a kid to through college. Um, but I really, I sort of want to go from here to what I, the most important question that I have for today. Chapter 25 is entitled, Bite Off More Than You Can Chew. <laughs> you can figure out how to chew later. Um, in light of so many stories of these wild variations of narcissists who have created these gigantic promises on which they were unable to um, really make good. I wonder how you talk about this particular topic with how you would talk about this with somebody who's young and just starting out, you know, there's a, there's a peril and a virtue here. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm curious to hear how this played out for you. Yeah, for us, you know, our reach always exceeded our grasp. And that made it very fun to work with us too. So like, if you're my mentor, and I'm just like, everything's good. I'm on a linear path. You're like, okay, well, great. Rubber stamp the friendship. I guess I'll see you later. But if I'm like, right. hey, I am in this place, and I don't know how I'm going to get to the end. That's really fun. That's why they're there. That's why mm -hmm. they want to mentor you. So it's like, this idea of like, you know, giving the gift of somebody else helping you, not right. like thinking, oh man, it's quid pro quo, game of trades. Now I owe this person. No, on the contrary, now they're more invested in your success. And if you take their advice and then take it to the next step, they're probably going to be pretty keen to fall, to give you more advice. You know, like it's very flattering when people hear what you say and then do it and then come back and show you, you know, right. um, right. In terms of sort of like the megalomania at play, uh, I ha I'm from two camps. One, that's not me. That's not my partners. We are community first guys. And so that's why we successfully built a community company. If you're thinking about extracting value, if you're thinking about what I'm going to get out of this, then the, the, the cornerstone of what you're doing is poisoned in a sense, right? And people yes. know, um, you know, it just won't yield what you want. Uh, I, and, you know, the, the, the sort of like sociopathic tendency or megalomania you know, that you're seeing exists. So there's the WeWork story or there's the Uber story or whatever on, you know, TV. One, these are like all juiced up to be as shocking as possible and to be annoying as possible. And for, these are the heels, right? You know, they're mm. the characters that we're supposed to hate in the telling of this story. And um, these these guys don't get to enjoy the success in the same way that they would had they, you know, not overshot the landing. So it's not like they wake up every morning and they're like, oh man, let me, you know, drink a glass of champagne and go hit my jet ski. I'm so happy. Like they wanted the love and affection as well. Like they're human beings. Um, and in the case of Uber, like, so he lost out and certain investors perhaps, you know, lost out to a degree, but the customer and, and, and there was so much bad behavior. The people that were specifically and personally harmed by the stuff is terrible. Um, you know, and I think that we're evolving as a society for what is permissible, how to create workplaces that you want to be in to continue on the negative before I hit you with a little positive. Um, once your workplace is 90% white men, what women and people of color want to be there? Like yeah. what professional track is worth it? And if that's the reason they're coming, then you're already losing, right? So you are who you are and everything else is an approximation and, you know, the fish rots from the head. Now, oh, that being right. said, right. 
I use Uber a lot, man. I use Uber <laughs> Eats a lot. I love the product. And if these guys weren't psychos and didn't think that they could literally manipulate reality as we knew it to bring their thing into being that had to be there, it wouldn't be there. Um, so that is a very difficult thing. Like to, and, and you see it even with people that, you know, meditate and, you know, microdose and it can still service ego if that's like where your head's at. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I don't. I don't have an answer for you. I just have my own exploration and feelings. Yeah, that that's kind of what I wanted to to hear about how you looked at all that stuff, knowing some of the players there, and also you know having had experiences where I'm certain you could have easily been tempted to tip the scales in that direction, you know, manipulation or in some way some sort of malevolence, and and you didn't and. It's why I, I, it's why I'm still here. <laughs> yeah. It's why I love we're not, you. We're not, we're not that smart and we're not that self-confident where we think we can right. get it over. And I think it's also helpful that we were the youngest people in the room when we started Summit. We always knew that we were the dumbest, right. least exposed, you know, uh, 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 people in the mix. So, of course, we're going to be servant leaders to a, a community of people that are much more smart and global and experienced. And, you know, years in, we start building our own pattern recognition and forming our own opinions, but it took six, seven, eight years. And, and, you know, it took a ton of help from our community. Yeah. The, um, the chapter 29, the art of social sculpture, this is a really cool one, and I think it might be inspiring for our listener too. Just regular day-to-day dinner time antics. Instead of just inviting people because you hadn't seen them in some time, you actually invited people based on a theme. And I love this. I love this for just regular humans in the world. You want to have a little dinner gathering with your friends. What if you did that? Um, and I would love to hear how that came about. For sure. It, you know, I, I have said it too many times because it's kind of true and kind of not true. But, you know, the, the dinner table is the greatest piece of human technology ever created. Um, breaking bread with another is such an intimate thing. And you can sit down thinking you have nothing in common with someone. And 45 minutes later, I can almost guarantee that you'll you know find that you have more in common than not. Mm-hmm. Um And when it comes to just your own social circle, your own professional life, the act of simply gathering people that are, you know, that would be great to meet one another, it's just the best thing you can do for yourself. You could be a nobody in a space, but if you throw the gathering um, and all these great people meet, they're going to paint you with that same paintbrush that you belong in that crowd or at that level. So, you you know, to get invited to the party, throw the party. Um... And in terms of just breaking down how to make it good, the the idea of the art of social sculpture, the eros of an experience, the deepening of meaning of all things, like you can make something holy, not to go off the deep end, but that's consecration and ritual. There are ingredients that, 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 you know, all holy ceremonies follow. And, you know, when we think about an invite to an experience, your experience starts when you get told about the thing. So did you just get a phone call or an email? Did you get, you know, a mini letterpress, you know, a declaration of independence in a manila envelope with a razor blade, right? Or did you, you know, uh, did, you, did somebody fly an airplane over your house with a banner that told you about the thing? All, I'm not saying that's what you do, but like it right. literally starts from there. That's the provocation. Um, why are we gathering, 
right? Like, what is this about? What is the meaning behind it? What's the theme? It could be a kickback. It could be, you know, to discuss global issues. But, you know, you have to spell that out so the people that you want to come show. Um, and then you can connect all of the features of that experience, the food, the music, the narrative and order of things that you have people do when they arrive. Do they just sit down at the table or do they go through a maze and get lost first and have to discover their way with another dinner guest, right? Like all of these things have an impact on their experience. And so right. that's what we would do. We'd like, you know, forage the food locally. We'd get, you know, an amazing artist to play in the meal or a poet, you know, to, to, to you know, really inspire us. Um, and we would do it in like a non-corny way. Like if we sit down, there's note cards for what we're supposed to ask one another. It can feel forced, but you can create a milieu, a vibe, a place, a space where people feel comfortable. And that's really where your parasympathetic nervous system relaxes yes. and you're actually way more open-minded. Um, so, you know, this is, this is an incredibly, and, you know, to quote my mentor in this space, Michael Hebb, when I first met him and he broke this down to me, he was like, you know, um, I'll give you two great quotes of his. He was like, every kick-ass president in the last 250 years had an unbelievable wife who threw the best dinner parties, like the <sighs> power of the state dinner, wow. you know? And um, the other thing he said is he's like, hey, do you keep it real? I was like, yeah, man, of course. Of course I keep it real. Don't do that. Everybody keeps it real. <sighs> what you have to do is keep it surreal and just go a little bit beyond everybody else's imagination. Surprise them. Delight them. And wow. then it's something that's never, you'll never forget it. Wow. Which leads perfectly into my last question for you. Um, I'm on page 224 now. And I dog-eared this page because you've said, and I quote, it was around this time that we discovered we were favor economy millionaires. And I'm going to read on. What does that mean? Well, we believe there are two economies. There's the cash economy that we all know well, the one built on capitalism, clever marketing campaigns, and retail therapy. And then there's the favor economy. The favor economy is made up of the relationships you have that allow you to access expertise and opportunities built upon a foundation of what you've been able to do for others. We didn't have much actual money, but we did have plenty of friends and favors to call in, and those are priceless. You go on to talk about the many, many favors that were done for you over the course of that time that you were wrangling 20 million to buy the mountain. Um, let me introduce you to a world-class architect. One would say, I can get you to an amazing mountain developer, offered another. And that's how you learned about development and zoning and land conservation, entitlements, county, but all this stuff. A favor economy millionaire is probably the luckiest person in the room. It's just all about perception. Depends on what you are seeking and what makes you feel the most secure. Um, mm. that's what drove us. That's where our serotonin and dopamine was tied to. We really wanted, and you know, it wasn't one for one. Again, if you are doing people favors so you can call favors, that is a game of trades. That is, you know, a reciprocity loop. Yeah. What we're talking about is to just give unselfishly with no expectation of return. And two things happen. One, it puts you in a posture where of course you would just ask for help. Why wouldn't you? There's no shame around asking people to hook you up with great people. You know you have an inspiring project. You know you have a history and a reputation for doing unto others. So, and, and you know, you have to detach from the outcome that they are gonna be the one that's gonna make the play for you. 
Um, the other thing that happens is that there's a triangulation of goodwill. And so it doesn't need to be one-to-one. -one. We all operate in communities, especially a community company. And, you know, your reputation, you build it in drops and you lose it in buckets. And we have built a great reputation um, because we've done for others without, you know, counting chips or looking for our pound of flesh. So, you know, whether or not that person is the one that's going to help you, you know, we feel like we built a garden for ourselves where, you know, we, we had an excess of relationships. It's not, and if you're counting on one person to be the solve, that's a really rough position to put them in. That, yeah. that makes it so it's like, shit, do I want to take a favor from this person? Because right. is this a marker for something that they're going to call on me for? Why am I so lucky? Right. That's the last reaction you want to have when you're doing something generous. So the, the thing I would say is like, if you want to become a favor economy millionaire, don't talk about it, be about it. Don't tell somebody you're going to do them a favor. Um, just do, just do the favor. Yeah. And and don't ask for a thank you. Don't, you know, you can follow up and see. Yeah. I mean, and people forget it. It's not that they're bad people. That's that they don't have the same serotonin dopamine loop to giving in the way that you do. If this yeah. makes you happy, then then you can't be expecting them to be like, oh, yeah, man, a month later, this thing happened. And I wanted to report back to you and, you know, give you that good boy pat on the head for helping me out. Like you have to be the one to ask them if you want to know what happened, right? Because sure. you're the one that made the uh, uninitiated value add. Right. Um, so uh, it is It is definitely probably the strongest muscle we have in the arsenal um, and something that I wish there was more of in the world. Yeah, I think that that is a very fair statement. And I want to thank you for, I was really excited to say yes to this because I knew I was going to walk away from this inspired and I'm very deeply inspired. And I wanted to leave us with the very last um, sentence of the whole book, which is uh, contextualized. You, we came into the pandemic, your entire sort of model has kind of had to go out the window. Um, you, of course, scrambled and figured out your way through the very last sentence, last two sentences filled with excitement, we got to work brainstorming solutions. We knew that no matter what problem might arise, we were only an idea away. And I think that's inspiration for all of us, for our listener, for me, for sure. There isn't anything that we can't really get through. Um, we have people around us who are willing to help us. We have one idea that might be the idea. Maybe it's another one. But it's only that idea away. And you guys are a living embodiment of this truth. And I cannot, I'll never thank you enough. Well, thank you, Elena. That makes me, <laughs> that just touches me. And I want to reiterate how important you were to us on this journey. I think um, it's very easy to go down the wrong route or to start, you know, taking your small successes to your head. And I think that having a real spiritual practice, um, you know, not going through the motions, not an athletic practice, but a spiritual practice um, was extremely grounding for us and probably why people liked being around us so much. Um, and so, you know, you, you have a big, big hand in our whole path and everything that happened, especially in the time period of that book. Mm. Uh, um, and I just love you and appreciate it. I love you too. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Glow, for having us have this conversation. And I look forward, if you're listening, to seeing you for class. 
And Jeff, I look forward to seeing you as soon as possible. Thank you so much. Me too, but you. Thanks for listening. Thank you to our entire team behind the scenes at Glow. I'm so grateful for your care and commitment to serving our members around the world. Thank you to our teachers for so beautifully sharing your gifts and talents. I'm also grateful to our lovely community of GLOW members. You've supported us since 2008, and because of you, we get to continue to do the work we love. It's the combined support of our team, our teachers, and our community that grants me the privilege to continue to bring you the GLOW podcast. Thank you to Lee Schneider, our Red Cub agency, for production support. And the beautiful music you're hearing now is by Carrie Rodriguez and her husband, Luke Jacobs. And remember, take care of yourself because our world needs you. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. You can find the Glow Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or glo.com slash podcast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Derek Mills.